we have had a long career in climate change before it became popular, sort of. I mean, for most of the time that that I can remember, working on climate change was not a cool thing. <laughs> it's not, no. Now it's a cool thing, thanks to Greta and the Climate Youth. Yeah, looks like, yeah. So now you're cool, and before you weren't cool. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Not sure. <laughs> okay. Not sure. My name is David Dahl. And I'm a PhD student at ETH Zurich, and I work on deforestation and the way AI can help prevent deforestation and help reforest forests. And I'm Lynn Kag. I'm a postdoc at ETH Zurich in the Energy Politics Group, and I work on policies related to climate change in the energy system. My name is Jennifer Kakshuri, and the three of us are guests in the studio of the Podcast Club Switzerland. This is an episode for the ETH podcast, and we will be talking about how artificial intelligence and machine learning can tackle climate change. Okay, wait a minute. Stop. This is a recording from last March, right before the lockdown in Switzerland due to the coronavirus pandemic. At the time, we were talking about where to buy hand sanitizer and we all didn't know what was going to happen. And when I met David and Lynn, it actually was the last meeting I had with people aside from my family. So this seems like quite a while ago. I'm now connected with Lynn and David via video conference. Hi, David. Hi, Lynn. Hello. Hi. Where are you right now? I am in a tiny village in northern Germany where my parents live. I decided to stay in Zurich. I have my own flat right now, so my roommates all went home, so it's my own space. And life and work is both at home for both of you, or is there any way for you, David, to go to the lab as well? So the good thing about the work I'm doing is that we don't need to be in the lab, so we are very fine with working at home, and so most of my work time is basically in front of the computer currently. So we're going to listen to the episode that we recorded last March before the lockdown and we will interrupt the recording and talk about how corona and climate might be connected. First, I want to go to the beginning, to your beginnings in this field. How did you get interested in climate change and computer science? I got interested in climate change in high school. It was actually after watching Inconvenient Truth. <laughs> Can you quickly explain? It's a movie? It's a movie by Al Gore, and I haven't watched it since, so I don't know how good it actually is, but that's what got me motivated. And then um, after high school, I studied physics with a bachelor and a master's and decided to um, work on climate change after I finished my master's in physics. And I did a PhD in engineering and public policy at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh in the U.S. While studying there, I got interested in statistics and machine learning. So I took a number of classes, did actually a secondary degree in machine learning. And then towards the end of my PhD, combined this um, work in climate policy and machine learning um, also in my research. And what about you, David? What was it about climate change and AI that did it to you? I grew up in a black forest, so nature has been a big part of like my life. And I started actually on the machine learning side first. So I started studying computer science, got interested in AI, artificial intelligence, not really too much into climate change. But then 
I think it was this hackathon in 2017, which was hosted by the United Nations Climate Change Conference back then, um, which I just participated. It was like, how can AI and exponential technology help solve like the climate crisis? I participated based out of interest. And there was this one topic about that forest and land use actually cause a lot of the emissions that causes global warming. And because of that connection, I tried to see what like AI can help and do. And really from that on, it started. A hackathon, we quickly need to explain. I know for people of your generation, it's clear what a hackathon is, but could you summarize in one sentence what it is? So usually a hackathon is a place where a bunch of hackers like coders get together and program um, for a couple of days and they just feed on pizza and coke and uh, produce something nice to show off after like a couple of days demonstrate like some cool projects but this hackathon was quite special it was trying to be sustainable so it was on a boat and it was hosted by the united nations climate change conference and we were basically giving a task a lot of people like certain tasks about like okay this area and this area and we just come up with like creative ideas to tackle that with technology when you talk about climate change, what are you talking about regarding your research, Lynn? So I work on climate change mitigation, which refers to reducing the emissions of greenhouse gases and therefore reducing the speed of how the climate changes. And I work on the energy sector, so transportation, electricity systems, and in particular, how we can use policies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the energy sector. And what does that look like concretely? What do you do? What? How can I imagine a day in your life? That's a hard question because, you know, you work on so many different projects. Um, so, yeah, right now I work on a number of different research projects. Many of them are related to how we can use machine learning to automatically analyze text that relate to energy and climate policy. So for example, those texts could be financial statements by companies or legislation or um, patents. And um, we're trying to see if we can analyze those texts at scale to deduce insights about how policies can be used for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Let's stop this right here. That was back then in March when you told us what you were working on. Has any of this changed since the coronavirus pandemic? No, actually, it has intensified, I'd say. So lots of the projects have actually sped up um, since many people have more time to sit in front of the laptop. No, I mean, the time scales for these kind of projects are more in terms of a year or longer. So um, things don't change as fast. So I am still working on this with my colleagues. And yeah, since we work only over the computer, it's fine. So working from home. So let's continue listening. And David, you work in a different field. So what do you do? So we're trying to use technology, drones and satellite imagery to protect forests from being cut down illegally and also like try to plan where we can put in new trees efficiently and optimize tree growth. So we are trying to tackle the problem of deforestation. Land use and deforestation causes 25% of all global emissions. Um, and also many other more problems like a huge biodiversity loss and a lot of human tragedies. And so we're trying to use and optimize artificial intelligence algorithms to help policymakers and decision makers to monitor their areas. Can you tell us what it looks like, what these images look like that you use to observe the deforestation? They are noisy. So 
you can imagine them to be like your normal Google Earth image, but like a little bit more noise. So it's taken from a satellite and usually there are like clouds in it. It's different kind of lighting conditions. Sometimes there's also an error in the satellite. So there's a lot of variety you can, you, can, you de have to deal on the technical side. But then when you clean up the data and you see the forest, sometimes it actually looks very depressing too because you can see forest fires, especially last year in Brazil, which were very strongly observable from space. It's a mixed feeling when you look at it. Let's stop it again right here. David, how did the satellite images change since the coronavirus pandemic regarding your work? So we can observe in many major cities that the air quality improved. But on the forest side, um, the air quality has always been pretty good besides, of course, like whenever there's a forest fire or um, when there's illegal activities going on. So in that sense, uh, not much has changed. And that's something which is concerning too, because supposedly currently it's a pandemic and people should be in lockdown and we would expect like a reduction of deforestation but this pattern has not significantly been observed yet so the fact that we don't see any changes in forest satellite imagery is concerning because it means that deforestation is still happening so let's go back to the recording from last march and continue listening How can you stop deforestation concretely? Like if you see it with the images and your algorithms tell you, hey, they're deforesting right here. How, how do you stop it? Because from a satellite picture down to the earth, down to the forest and to the trees, that's a big distance. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's in general for all of AI. And what the technology we are developing tries to solve is give decision makers and policymakers faster ways to analyze their situation and then decide smartly. So in our scenario, we are working with a pilot project in Chile where we are trying to work with the Chilean government and the rangers and telling them what areas like of the forest you should use your capacity and analyze and deploy instead of like randomly going and looking through areas. Our algorithms can tell them, look, we just spotted like this really critical area and you should, uh, you should check that out. So really the action itself is definitely from, from the human side. So it's not from a computer, but the computer can help accelerate what we call climate action or like prevention. You don't work in the same groups at the ETH, but you've been at the World Climate Conference in Madrid together last year. And Lynn, you're part of the Climate Change AI, an international group of top researchers. Okay, let's stop right here. Lynn, you want to say something? Yeah, actually, David now is also part of Climate Change AI very recently, I think. Yay. Two weeks, three weeks, something like this. That's correct. So we'll go back to the recording again. For people who've never heard of Climate Change AI, uh, what are your goals in one to two sentences? Our goal is to connect machine learning researchers with um, people who work on the domain side of climate change. That means people whose work is mainly centered on problems related to climate change. And that is both how we can reduce greenhouse gases and how can we adapt to climate change. And our mission is really to connect those two worlds because if you tackle problems as a data scientist or as a machine learning researcher, um, you might not see the big picture you might make it too complicated or to simplify it too much so we really need collaboration between people who understand the machine learning side really well and who understand the climate change side really well 
And we do that by organizing workshops at conferences where people can present their work, where we have panel discussions and poster sessions. And we also have an online presence where we have a newsletter and an online forum where people can exchange information. And that also, the intent is there to provide a sort of a home for this kind of work, both in the academic side and also for entrepreneurs because this kind of work is really in the intersection of many fields and people might not feel valued when they work on these because the incentives often don't align. So that means that you bring together all the different disciplines that it takes to really prevent climate change or to stop it in a way. Yeah, especially with an eye on machine learning and artificial intelligence. So we really focus on how can we leverage those techniques. They're just one piece of the puzzle, but we saw a gap there, um, especially in terms of communicating between the communities. You said that it's one piece of the puzzle, machine learning. To what extent can machine learning really solve the problem of climate change? I think machine learning can help accelerate decisions and climate action, and it can also make things feel more close. Like right now, climate change just feels like a mathematical problem for many and for other people they really don't don't have any kind of feeling of what it is and machine learning can really visualize the information which which is there in about climate change and for example the monitoring we're doing with the forest can help you get a little bit closer to the effects and yeah it it helps accelerate climate action but the climate action has to come from the people not from the machine learning algorithm And how are you going to do that? How will you get decision makers to take action? This is something where the climate protests actually play a big role because we need um, political pressure for governments to really move forward on this. This is where I see the, the biggest lever. So research really helps to provide the information that is needed for, for making good decisions and making good policy. And machine learning can play a big role there. But then ultimately it's the policies that design the incentives for the energy system to transition or for natural systems to be better preserved. Another place where machine learning comes in is actually basic research and engineering. So there's still lots of areas in the energy system where we don't have well-developed technologies that can be just deployed at the current state, both because they're too expensive or because they don't quite work as well. For example, we don't really have a good solution for aviation where we still rely on fossil fuels. And um, machine learning can help to accelerate this experimentation there. So both in fuel research and battery research, this is really a really exciting area where machine learning comes in as well. So in your specific fields, what needs to be done that one can stop climate change? There's so many things across the board. You really need to address everything at the same time. You um, need to address the area that David works on. Um, you need to preserve forests, for example. But you also need to address transportation, the electricity systems, building sector. It's really a very difficult problem because we're so dependent on fossil fuels and we're so dependent on emitting greenhouse gas emissions. I think if you look at the numbers, the fossil fuel itself, only a bunch of companies in the fossil fuel industry are responsible for most of the emissions worldwide. And those are the companies we need to like convince to stop emitting. But then besides that, there are a lot of small things you can do. If you look at the numbers, the next big cause, again, is land use change. How can you create more sustainable food for our population and how can we protect the environment? There's a lot of 
policies already in place for deforestation. I mean, it's it's a known problem. So the United Nations put in ecosystem payment services. That means you get paid when you're not cutting down your forest. You can imagine that it's hard to hard to check and. Right now, how it's done, it's like people fly in into the forest areas, measure each single tree by hand, and it's just really annoying. And in that sense, automated verification methods can provide trust, such as those policies can be implemented, or maybe even better, such as people like us are willing to maybe donate to those farmers in those critical areas because they can see, okay, this algorithm probably is more truthful than like a third-party company. What do you do in your everyday life against climate change, away from artificial intelligence and machine learning? Um, yeah, so in Europe, I try to take trains wherever it's possible, which means also traveling for really long. I I often travel to northern Germany um, for visiting family, but also because I have collaborators there in Berlin and close to Hamburg. And the train rides are including the delay, often 10 hours or more. But I try to do that, especially now since I moved back to Europe and it's possible. In the U.S., often you had to fly if you wanted to go somewhere. So that's really one thing that I try to change now. I eat mostly vegetarian. Yeah, those are my personal areas. And you, David? Very similar, I think. Also motivated by my research and knowing so much about deforestation, one thing to know, for example, is that the percent deforestation is caused 80% by the local cattle industry. Like Brazil is the biggest, it's, it's called the farmhouse for the world. It's the biggest beef exporter in the world. So definitely this Brazilian beef is not on my on my daily dish anymore. And other than that, if, you're, if you don't have to fly, just there's no need to. I think the scientific community still struggles because we have a lot of big conferences all over the world, which is like very far ahead. But if it's like in Europe, then maybe you can just take the train or maybe if it's a further conference, we are right now discussing about doing remote presentations of our work. I think that helps this mind shift. Okay, let's stop it right here. This remote presentation giving is actually something that might be boosted right now through the coronavirus pandemic. Um, we recently just had our first major machine learning conference virtually because all the major scientific conferences we know of will happen virtually and remote this year. So people and scientists are forced to think creatively about ways to make this work. And it's very interesting to see very creative ideas on how to do remote poster presentations where you can, of course, on the one hand, decide to have Zoom calls for each poster, but on the other hand, people try out virtual chat rooms where you can walk around with an avatar. And then every time you get close to another person's avatar, like Zoom call pops up, which is really interesting to see. So there's a lot going on in this field currently in the scientific community. Yeah, this this conference was called iClear, I-C-L-R, and Climate Change AI ran a workshop there. And the workshop actually extended into a five-day full day virtual event. David also organized one of those days. And um, it was a very interesting experience. There was a lot to figure out from the technology side and a lot to do on the back end. So we were four people, I think, at all times that were trying to manage this Zoom. It was a continuous Zoom call for most of the days with, I don't know, 20 speakers per day or more. No, I think it, it was probably 30 speakers over the whole week, but it felt more. 
in panel discussions. And we had, I think, around 100 people in that Zoom call at all times. And um, it was a very interesting experience. The main conference had uh, live streams online and lots of people attended. And it was interesting because this conference, they looked into their carbon footprint quite a lot in the in the months leading up to the conference and they decided to offset their emissions. Now that everything was moved online, it was like a playground, sort of an experiment. If we can make this work to have a whole conference online and it looks like it worked. I mean, it was it felt very, very focused, more concentrated in a sense. Yeah, and you felt close to the people. So you really felt like you were in one room when you were in that Zoom call. And speakers got a lot of questions through the chat box. And some talks even were way more interactive because people started answering questions during that talk. So I think it was almost more participatory than the normal conferences. And shy people didn't have to be as shy as if there were 200 other people in the audience. Exactly. Yeah. So we read out their questions so you didn't have to stand up in front of everyone. I think one great thing to add to is that people who usually cannot attend the conference because they need to take care of their children or they, they live in countries which makes it very difficult for them to travel far and a long time, were able to attend because it was virtual. So in that sense, the impact of being able to have a much more diverse set of people, and that's great to see. Will future conferences and workshops take place in the internet in the future if there are climate change conferences? I think it's hard to say, yeah, but you cannot, for example, do the United Nations climate conference virtual because you have 20,000 delegates and participants. There's no virtual Zoom room that fits everyone in. But like for conferences in specific communities, machine learning conferences, I feel there could be a chance that we will see that more often. Yeah, we have a whole set of recommendations of how to set this up now. I mean, there was definitely a lot of initial barriers that are now torn down. And I am kind of confident that people will experiment with this format more now. So let's go back to the recording from March. How optimistic are you really for the future if you look at climate change in the world within the next, let's say, 50 years? Honestly, I'm kind of pessimistic. Of course, we need to try to do as much as possible. Every fraction of a degree less of warming or later of warming is, is good. But I'm kind of pessimistic given the past decades. What about you, David? Are you more optimistic than Lynn? I've been attending like the last three climate change conferences, Madrid, Katowice, and Bonn. And to be honest, the first two were really depressing because you can see there's just so many problems for so many countries to find an agreement. We have like almost 200 countries in the world. It's everyone has to agree on something and no one can say no to, to like the decrease in the conferences. So the first two were really depressing, but I also met like delegates who have been like working in this field for so many years and they are like the sunniest people ever. And sometimes I'm like, I'm trying to understand how that can be because climate depression is actually a real sickness and causes a lot of depression right now. Let's stop it right here again. Are you still as pessimistic as you were when we recorded this in March? Because speaking about your virtual climate change meetings and workshops, you seemed very happy and inspired about. I think in the long run, not much has changed for the climate crisis as such. So there are a lot of short-term effects, but what ultimately matters if 
changes happen on the long run. And these are often policy driven. And those policies, of course, depend on economic conditions and political conditions. And having another crisis is typically not good news for that. In what sense? In the sense that if economic conditions harden, then of course it, it also gets harder to implement large-scale changes from an economic or technology side, so um, making investments in renewable energies. Um, for example, in the US, they have rolled back fuel economy standards already for making more efficient vehicles. So they loosened up those regulations already. And of course, it's not a given that that's going to happen, but there's no reason to be more optimistic now. David, do you share Lynn's opinion? Or are you a bit more optimistic? I'm a little bit more afraid because we see a lot of short-term effects, but the intuition that the pandemic solves the climate crisis is strong. I mean, the media has been reporting about a lot of environmental benefits of this crisis. Like, for example, Venice has like now clean water and the dolphins are coming back, right? But if you look, for example, about the carbon emissions, which we need to get down for until like within eight years, This year will be the first year ever where we are actually expect to have lower greenhouse gas emissions than the previous years. But it's not even low enough to reach this 1.5 degree. So just not going out on vacations or not visiting Venice won't solve the climate crisis. It's not enough. The climate crisis is a very urgent crisis. So we know that we have not a lot of time left to reduce our emissions and Another crisis, especially a crisis in the scale of the current pandemic, just takes away very valuable time. As you can see that by all the cancellations of important climate conferences and the fact that, for example, Friday for Futures can't go out anymore and they have to do things virtually now. So we, we're losing a lot of time. So in that sense, I'm actually a little bit more tending towards the concerning side. We'll go back to the recording now again. It's not the very old ones who will suffer the real consequences of climate change. It's going to be us, it's going to be our children, grandchildren who will be living with our decisions right now. So I can see that this depression is a real thing. But then those people, those delegates, right, they are the like sunniest people I've ever met and so hopeful. And I, I was always wondering how, how can that work together? It turns out like, and I think this is before Greta, they said like, if you don't have hope, how can you, how can you change anything? You need to at least try. And then Last year, Kreta, like Kreta came in already in Katowice, but like back then, not a lot of people knew about her. But last year was really a big change towards the way people see climate change in their public lives. Things started to change. Not too much, I agree with Lynn, on the policy side, but a lot on how we feel about climate change and how people got together, led by a 16- now 17-year-old girl. That's really hopeful to see. And I think... In many ways, I agree with what Greta said, that the real change doesn't come from those United Nations climate change conferences. It comes from the people, right? The people have to first adopt that this is an important problem and go to the politicians and pressure them and keep on pressuring. And maybe the tools we develop using AI or using any other technology then needs to be given to those people. So you could work as translators, both of you, towards decision makers and politicians with your research. Yeah, that's exactly our job, I think, is to, to translate between research and decision makers and policy makers and to inform them to the best we can about, you know, how they should make their decisions, how they should design their policies. Both of you are passionate about what you do and research is 
a part of you also an activist that might disturb you as a scientist? I think this is a really important question because like one of the problems we have in climate change is it's not that we just know about it. It's known for many, many years and the scientific studies has been put under question because of misinformation, because people didn't want to believe, because people thought the scientists are biased or like got paid by someone. So I think it's really important to state that clearly that the estimates we have presented here with the numbers with 1.5 degrees and we have eight years left are conservative estimates from the IPCC, the International Panel for Climate Change. And this has been done in coordination with all nations. So, And I think if you look at these numbers, which scientists have been agreeing on, although it's like, think about the political framework, then it it is almost pushing you towards activism because you feel like there's such an urgency as a scientist. But of course, I think the question can be reformulated and how can you not care about our planet if you know those numbers, right? Of course, we need to be objective. We need to reason. We need to know that shaming someone to fly is probably not saving the world. It's a systems change that is required. But other than that, I feel like the situation is urgent enough that a lot of scientists have actually decided to move towards activism. There's, for example, Scientists for Future, which is like an organization that's aligned with the climate protests. So... I feel like in many ways you cannot avoid this. What about you, Lynn? Does your inner activist disturb your inner researcher? It's a really tricky area because, I mean, I also work in the policy field, right? So you deal with politics on a daily basis. And the goal here is really to consult on how we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And that's the main mission. But the The problem is so intertwined with so many other social issues, with food security, equity, water supply, um, especially the issues around equity and economic growth are really tricky. So um, it is political in some sense. Um, I don't know what an activist is, right? Um, if you're trying to to consult on the on the best kind of policies, are you an activist or not? I also think that in in all of this, there are different roles. So um, there are people who do these kind of jobs and maybe um, you can argue on this topic and we have these kind of discussions. Is my day better spent in the office trying to work as much as I can or is it better spent on the street and in protest? And these are tricky questions and everybody has an individual answer to that. And there are also different degrees to which people engage like privately in making political statements, also about stuff that's not related to climate change. It's also a very personal question and there's no easy answer to that. I think the question why it's so important is that it shows why the science has been like doubted for a while. Because if you look at the numbers and someone who says those numbers said this is like an activist, not a scientist. This is the reason why we can't agree on like decisions. And I think this is really dangerous, especially nowadays when you can basically give out any fake news and it spreads over the internet. We really need to believe in the science and we cannot just discredit a scientist by saying he's an activist only because the numbers are so urgent. It's important to look at it objectively, but then if the only conclusion is that we need to act, that's not activism, that's survival. You cannot really divide between private life and your life as a researcher because what you do in your private time still kind of reflects on who you are and what you think. That's also 
an interesting aspect of this. Even though you should be able to, but you're really not. What crosses your mind now that we listened to the whole episode that we recorded actually before the whole coronavirus pandemic? I mean, a lot has changed personally because the pandemic came much faster than we expected. And of course, that changed the way we work. Lynn, what crossed your mind while listening to what you spoke about in March? I think one aspect is how naive I was. Even though I knew exponential curves and I kind of expected things that things could move really fast, you still kind of imagine the whole spring of, you know, should I take a train for this many hours? Is it dangerous? Do I need to wash my hands touching, a, I don't know, door handle? And then it all happened so fast. And like, even though I knew what was looming, I, I was still pretty naive back then. And what about regarding climate change and your research? What do you think about it now? Has a lot changed aside from the conferences and the workshops that take place in virtual spaces? I think, I mean, we are really lucky in the sense that we can just work as we worked before from home and receive the salary really not much changed. I was I was very surprised in the beginning how normal it felt because apparently I spent my whole day on a computer anyways and almost didn't feel a difference. But I'm a little bit concerned from a personal perspective about the future and especially about the economic conditions that might arise and about also the professional future. We don't know what happens to grant money um, what happens to positions opening up or not. And my colleagues from the US, um, they're even more concerned. They're hiring freezes all over the place. So yeah, from that perspective, also something changed. The focus rightfully shifted away from the climate crisis. In the public, also the research focus, many universities have emergency researchers focusing specifically on the pandemic, which is absolutely understandable. But I think it's really important to also not forget the other crisis we are currently living, which is the climate crisis, and therefore listening to the podcast confirms what I'm doing. So I'm very proud that I have the ability to work in this field and trying to make a change. And it just confirms that even in the midst of a pandemic, you cannot forget the other problems we're having and facing, because they are going to haunt you afterwards. And it's important to stick with it and don't lose focus. If there was one sentence that you could address to decision makers about climate change and the crisis that we're actually in now during the coronavirus pandemic, what would that one sentence be? Think about the people. Keep in mind the well-being of people also in 10, 20 years from now. In the corona crisis, we're talking a lot about flattening the curve, which is trying to protect our healthcare system from too many people who are ill. And we also cannot forget that we have a second curve we need to flat, which is our emissions, our total emissions, because there's only so much our Earth can take as a capacity. So I think this would be something I would give like politicians that after you flatten the one curve, please think about flattening the other curve too. David Dao, Lin Kak, thank you very much for joining us a second time in the ETH podcast. My name is Jennifer Kakshuri and I produced this episode together with Tis Wachter's Audio Story Lab and sound designer Luki Fretz. <laughs>